Chapter 4, The Ninth Man Prior to the opening of the annex, only one of Ed Atterbury's Room 6 cellmates had ever met him. Laurie Langell knew him only slightly. They had been stationed together for a few months at Mountain Home Air Force Base, Idaho, before they were deployed to separate units in Southeast Asia. Atterbury deployed to Thailand in October 1966 with the 11th Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron, he was shot down and captured August 12, 1967, three days after Langell. They were reintroduced two months later in the annex. A Texan, Atterbury had served in the U.S. military for 15 years before his capture. But he was not part of the community of fighter pilots from which his cellmates hailed, all connected or familiar with each other in one way or another. Prior to earning his Air Force pilot wings in 1956, Atterbury served three years enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves. McCushion remembered Atterbury saying he'd received his commission as a second lieutenant through an Air Force Aviation Cadet program that no longer existed when McCushion, who was four years younger, earned his ROTC commission. Like McCushion, Atterbury's other cellmates were all college graduates who earned their commissions with their bachelor's degrees. Atterbury was perhaps more of a working-class mentality, judging from his three years as a Marine grunt and a civilian stint as a telephone lineman in the Texas Sun. But it was more than military pedigree that set Atterbury apart from his cellmates. At Mountain Home and in Southeast Asia, Atterbury and Laurie Langell flew the RF-4C, the tactical reconnaissance model of the F-4 Phantom II, the U.S. Air Force's primary fighter jet. Their mission was not to drop bombs, but collect intelligence, photos of enemy activities. Prior to those assignments, Langell had flown fighters, like their other Annex cellmates, not reconnaissance aircraft. Mountain Home was Langell's first assignment in a reconnaissance unit. Atterbury, on the other hand, was a career reconnaissance pilot. For 10 years, he flew spy planes. According to a profile of Atterbury's military career on the genealogy website wikitree.com, in the decade prior to his shootdown, he'd flown reconnaissance versions of the F-84 and F-101 in addition to the RF-4. He was stationed in Germany and France from 1957 to 1960, flying the RF-484 Thunderflash and, according to Wally Newcomb, the RB-57 Canberra. It's worth noting that R stands for reconnaissance in the plane designations. Presumably, he was collecting intelligence for NATO forces aligned against the Soviet Union and its Iron Curtain satellites. Upon returning to the United States in 1960, the wiki profile states he flew the RF-101 Voodoo over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1962, he returned to his former reconnaissance unit in France and arrived at Mountain Home in November 1965, where he qualified to fly the RF-4C and met Langell. When Atterbury and Tom Norris were moved from the Hanoi Hilton to the annex in October 1967, they joined Langell, Newcomb, and Red Wilson in a newly opened cell. As the months rolled into the room shuffle of April 1968, none of his cellmates had got to know Atterbury overly well, but he was well-liked. Atterbury did not hide his reconnaissance background from his cellmates. Here's Wally Newcomb, quote, Ed was a great guy. He was a fun person. However, if you were to meet him and he were dressed in civilian clothes, you'd never guess he was an Air Force officer. He acted more like, 
He didn't exactly act like an officer. I'm not sure if I can exactly describe how officers act. I can say a lot of them can act like assholes, and that would be correct. But Ed didn't act like an asshole. He was a great person. If you were to meet 10 people and were told, guess which person got passed over for 04, you'd guess Ed. End quote. According to his cellmates, Atterbury had been passed over, not selected for promotion, more than once in his career. To most Air Force officers, that is a career killer and a sign that the officer's service has been flawed in some ways. To his fighter pilot cellmates, this remained a point worth mentioning decades later, perhaps highlighting another difference between Atterbury and them. Each of his Room 6 cellmates painted a similar image as Newcomb had. Nice guy, but not your standard gung-ho military aviator. Quote Bell Meyer. He was a likable guy. He was not a serious person. That was the attitude he gave us. And Bill Baugh, calm guy, pretty quiet, didn't get adamant or vehement about anything, nor take much of a stance about anything. John Dramisi described Atterbury as simply an easygoing guy. He was easy to talk to. Dramisi also called him a conscientious soldier. Within months, Dramisi would know Atterbury better than any man in the cell. But a comment from Don Heiliger encapsulated what the rest of his cellmates seemed to think of the stocky Texan. Quote Heiliger, I really don't know much about him, and I really didn't understand Ed. My opinion of him was he was a happy-go-lucky guy. He had a good time and was more or less carefree. A nice guy. He'd been passed over a couple times for major. Didn't give a darn. He loved to fly. At that time, he probably couldn't care less if he got promoted as long as he could fly. End quote. But what if Ed Atterbury wanted them to think that? Maybe he projected that image intentionally. He was, after all, a pilot of spy planes, which made him an intelligence asset. It's likely he had a top security clearance, such as an SCI, for sensitive compartmented information. He would have had detailed knowledge of the surveillance and performance capabilities of each of the reconnaissance planes he'd flown. His knowledge of highly classified activities, programs, and equipment would have been great intelligence value to the North Vietnamese or their communist allies. Considering Atterbury was held with general combat aviators, not high-value prisoners, it's likely the North Vietnamese did not recognize the intelligence asset they held. Atterbury may have carried a laid-back, unmilitary demeanor and tried to stay in the background so not to draw undue attention from his captors. And if the fighter pilots knew nothing about him, there'd be nothing to reveal under North Vietnamese torture. Much of what is written here about Atterbury was gleaned from the internet, not from his cellmates. He was born March 3, 1934, to Zachary, called Lee by his family, and Marjorie Atterbury in Klondike, Texas, about 100 miles east-northeast of Dallas, which his cellmates said he called home. Ed shared his father's middle name, Lee. He enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves when he was 18 and entered the Aviation Cadet Program in 1955 at age 21. Logic suggests this would have been the part of his life when he worked as a telephone lineman while he wasn't fulfilling his reserve commitments. Like his college grad cellmates, he earned his Air Force commission as a second lieutenant and his pilot wings at a typical age 22. By October 1957, at age 23, he was flying spy planes over Europe. When he was shot down a decade later, he left at home a wife and a very young son and daughter. 
His wife revealed little about Ed when we spoke for a few minutes in 2001, and his cellmates could reveal little more. In fact, Ed's cellmates could only offer one anecdote about him. More than one of his cellmates shared this gossipy tidbit with me. Here's one man's telling. Laurie Lingyell said he remembers Ed the night before Ed was supposed to leave for Vietnam. Ed was going through the officer's club at Mountain Home with a couple of drinks in each hand and some honey on each arm, and neither were his wife, and Ed was having a great time. That's the story. Salacious, sure, like something out of modern reality TV where sex sells, but not out of step with an often rehashed stereotype of military aviators in general, nor with sexual mores in the 1960s. I don't share the anecdote to Sully Atterbury, nor to paint Langell as a gossip. The snippet is revealing in its lack of depth. Fun and easy to talk to, Ed Atterbury lived with these men 24 hours a day for more than a year, nearly two years with some of them, in a closed, intimate environment. Yet he revealed so little of himself to them that just about the only interesting anecdote or personal tidbit anyone could recount was a bar story one of them witnessed in another time and place. Surely there was much more to Ed Atterbury. Physically, he was unremarkable, which would contribute to his eventual suitability for escape. Jermisi, who was five foot six, said Atterbury was a little taller, probably a little heavier than he. In the few photos we found online, he carried a double chin and his eyes, reportedly blue, appeared locked in a perpetual squint. He had a ruddy, creased appearance like he'd spent a lot of younger years in the sun. In one image, taken five months before he deployed to Southeast Asia, Atterbury is one of five Air Force men dressed sharply in their Class A uniforms, witnessing Idaho Governor Robert Smiley sign an Armed Forces Day proclamation. The photo appeared on page 15 of the Boise, Idaho Daily Statesman newspaper on May 18, 1966. Three years later, nearly to the day, Atterbury would be dead. Chapter 5. Who's in charge? Thrust a group of random military people together in any kind of official capacity, even some social settings, and the first thing they'll do is figure out who is in charge. Whenever and wherever American POWs were interned together, the U.S. military's code of conduct mandated that the senior ranking officer, or SRO, assume command and organize the men. This applied not only camp-wide, but also in any cell with more than one prisoner, as well as adjacent cells, cell blocks, entire buildings, wherever communication was possible. A lesser-ranking person could assume command if an SRO was incapacitated beyond ability to lead, or hidden away by the North Vietnamese and incommunicado, as higher-ranking prisoners often were. Otherwise, there was no provision in the Code of Conduct for voluntarily abdicating the responsibility nor to give command to someone who wanted the responsibility more. If two men wore the same rank, such as captain, the first tiebreaker was date of rank, the date each was officially promoted to captain. Whoever had the earliest promotion date outranked the other. If, by chance, two officers shared the same date of rank, then date of birth was the final arbiter. When John Dramacy was moved to the annex in April 1968, Red Wilson was SRO of their cell. Wilson had more time as a captain than anyone else in the room. 
He was promoted to captain in August of 1959 and outranked Dramisi and Baugh by less than a month. When I interviewed the seven still-living prisoners of Room 6 over 1999 to 2001, most said that the internal conflicts that would divide their cell for more than a year began with discussion of who was SRO in their cell. Lori Lingell put it diplomatically. We have a little discrepancy in the room as to who was the senior ranking officer, uh, whether it be Red Wilson or, uh, or Gramecia, and it had to do with, I think they were both captains at the time, but Gramecia, I think, had been selected for promotion in Red Hat Party. Once a year, the Air Force selects a certain percentage of its captains for promotion to major. That list is made public in its entirety, but rather than promote them all at once, the service staggers the promotions over the next 12 months. Both Dramisi and Baugh had been selected for major, but hadn't yet been officially promoted when they were shot down. However, the POW guidance was clear, date of rank at shootdown. In captivity, they missed promotions they had already earned. To the Air Force, they might be majors, but in the annex, they remained captains. Dramisi said he couldn't remember how he came to be SRO of Room 6, but recalled no conflict over the issue. And that was really not much of a debate. And what, what happened there was uh, uh, Highlander was the uh, uh, sort of the record keeper, and he knew that uh, I made major, but I never pinned them on. And Red Wilson uh, was passed over for major, right? And but his his date of rank uh, was I think a few days as a captain ahead of mine. Uh, so sometime, and I don't know how this happened, uh, it was always understood that I was the SRO. Most of the cellmates would later say that they thought Dramisi wanted to be the SRO of the room. Mike McCushton said. More than 20 years later, Baugh recalled snippets of that initial who's in charge discussion. He thought it was settled. Captain Wilson outranked Captain Dramisi. Then Dramisi said, but I'm really a major. Wilson looked at Dramisi and said, what was that? Dramisi repeated, I'm really a major. I was on the majors list when I was shot down. That was a year ago. I would have been promoted by now. Baugh said he didn't care who was in charge. Dramisi would outrank him as majors, and Wilson outranked him as captains. But a debate ensued among most everyone in the room. Others asked, what if a guy on the same majors list as Bond Dramisi gets shot down and comes to the annex after he got promoted? Why should he be a major and not them? What about guys who'd been in there for more than one promotion cycle? The North Vietnamese had held some prisoners for several years. How did they know those guys hadn't been promoted? How did anybody know who has been promoted or passed over while they were all imprisoned? Boss summed it all up. Quote, the guidelines were insufficient. End quote. There were legitimate reasons to question the fairness of the date of rank at shootdown rule. Baugh recalled that Wilson finally said, hell, I don't care. It was obvious Dramisi wanted the responsibility and that Red didn't, Baugh said. No one in the room dissented. 
Wilson told Dramisi, if you want to be senior, go ahead. Dramisi said, okay, I'm senior. Heiliger felt the incident exposed an underlying rift between Dramisi and Wilson. Let's say there was, the, the, there was never agreed upon a friendship between Red and John. They're, they're opposites. Red was more happy-go-lucky, like Atterbury was. He was fine, probably, you know, hit the bar. I think Red was already passed over once for, uh, for Major, if I'm not mistaken. Atterbury certainly had been uh, enhanced with that struggle, even though Red outranked Dramisi as a captain, saying Red did not make the major list. That's where the conflict mentally started, at least. Dramisi knew that he was on the major list and it will wait your time to get him on until your date came. He knew Red was not on there and uh, that he would, you know, when everything gelled out, there no way to shut down, he would certainly outrank him in a month or two when you get that. So there was always that animosity. And there was always a question. Although it made no difference behind cell doors, Room 6 also had a third unofficial leader, Heiliger. The North Vietnamese had appointed him Room Responsible. The NVA always appointed one of a cell's junior officers room responsible and did not acknowledge whichever American prisoner asserted leadership as his cell's SRO. To the junior captains in the room, McCustion and Newcomb, the debate was moot. McCustion remembered thinking at the time, Who gives a damn? It doesn't mean a damn thing because the, the, the your captors were not recognizing the senior person in the room. If they knew who it was, then they would appoint someone else. So it didn't, you know, it, it didn't at the moment matter. It turned out that it did. Heiliger said being room responsible did not entail much of anything and consisted mostly of disseminating information from their captors. Quote Heiliger, If they wanted something done, if they were serious about something, they still called out Red. They knew who was senior. And if it was something serious, they wouldn't challenge his seniority if they really wanted to make sure we understood something. So room responsible was only responsible when they wanted to use it. End quote. Heiliger speculated that he was made room responsible because he was fifth out of the nine captains in date of rank. Quote Heiliger, that puts me right in the middle. Bond Ramisi believed it was because Heiliger was more likely to bow a little deeper and acquiesce to their captors' demands more readily than they, setting a properly obedient example for his fellow captives from the NVA's perspective. Regardless, within Room 6, Major John Dramisi was SRO. In addition to establishing a chain of command, the second first thing POWs needed was a communication network. When the nine cellmates of Room 6 first came together in Room 2, five had come over from the zoo after previous stops at the Hanoi Hilton. However, four of the nine, Langyal, Wilson, Atterbury, and Newcomb, were shot down within days of each other in August 1967 and were transferred from the Hilton straight to the annex a few weeks later when the annex opened in October. Despite the growing number of Americans in the annex, they had not made contact with another cell since they'd been there. They knew there were other Americans in the annex that seen glimpses through cracks in the window shutters, but they'd made no contact. None of them knew the tap code. The tap code was the Americans' most useful mode of communication under the watchful oppression of the North Vietnamese. The alphabet was arranged into five rows of five letters each, omitting the letter K, which was duplicated by using C. 
One tap, a pause, and another tap meant first row, first letter, A. An F was made by two taps, followed by a single tap, second row, first letter. In this way, words could be spelled out, and by pausing a bit longer between words, sentences formed. An American in one cell could tap messages to other nearby prisoners using knuckles, a spoon, or any other small object on walls, doors, or other appropriate surfaces. Despite its simplicity, it was a difficult, cumbersome way to communicate, sometimes taking an hour to exchange a single sentence, and abbreviations were often used. But when you had hour after hour and day after day of monotonous captivity and often solitude, time was not a factor when the only contact was the faint tapping of an unseen American. The code had originated in the Hanoi Hilton. Someone had drawn it on the underside of a tabletop in an interrogation room. No one was sure of its origin, except that it was an American, apparently left alone to write a torture-induced confession. Other Americans, lying on the same floor, subject to similar abuse, saw it from the lower vantage point. They memorized it and taught it to every American they met after that. Baugh, Dramisi, Heiliger, McCushion, and Meyer all learned it that way. The North Vietnamese frequently juggled their American captives between the half-dozen prisons in the Hanoi area, attempting to break unity and communications networks. Unwittingly, they spread the code throughout their own prison system. By early 1968, it was the primary means of communication among Americans held in Hanoi prisons, and the prisoners had found many ingenious ways to wield it. Some men swept messages while on cleanup details, sweeping a broom in the proper cadence to transmit. Others communicated by flashing the code through cracks in doors and windows, block the light leaking out of the crack for a second at a time, and someone on the other side could translate the flashes into letters. But somehow, in nine months of captivity, the five original occupants of this annex cell, including Tom Norris, had never met another American who knew the code. Lengiel said he'd faintly heard the iconic American ditty of shave and a haircut tapped on a wall once, months prior when he was held alone. But he never answered. He'd thought it was a part of an NVA mind game, a trick to catch him breaking camp rules. Punishment for taking the bait, for attempting to communicate, was torture, probably the ropes. It wasn't a trick, but even if Lungyell had tried to answer, he would have heard no further message. The familiar refrain of shave and haircut was the American's secret cue to communicate. Eventually, the North Vietnamese had discovered the secret beneath the interrogation table and had broken the tap code. They tortured dozens of Americans admitting they used it, but they never discovered the musical password or the proper response. Two taps for two bits. That innocuous bit of Americana was a comforting invitation that let Americans in separate cells know that their countrymen were near and the coast was clear to communicate, if you knew the code. Like many warm climate cultures, Vietnamese society shut down for a couple hours midday. Shops closed and people typically stayed indoors and napped, even in Hanoi's prison camps. Siesta followed the prison lunch and it was prime time for the Americans' communication network. Like their captors, the prisoners were supposed to relax and nap, but with only a token turnkey patrolling the prison's grounds, usually looking for a secluded place to get out of the sun and snooze himself, Communications lit up each siesta like an operator's switchboard. 
The frequent moves of April 1968 gave the annex prisoners a better understanding of their environment, even though it still took them time to establish communications with other Americans. For many days, the cell next to Dramisi and company in their two-room building was empty, first when they were in room two, then again two buildings away in room six. Life settled into an uneasy routine. Heiliger said that compared to their time in the zoo, quote Heiliger, it felt good. It was nine people instead of three, end quote. Like life in the zoo, they awoke each day to a turnkey clanging metal against metal. The men crawled out from beneath their mosquito nets, wary of any rats or other critters that might have curled up along its fringes. They folded their nets and blankets into a neat bundle on their rice mats. A few moments later, the door shutter snapped open and a turnkey peered in. The men lined up at the foots of their rice mats and offered varying degrees of bows. The turnkey made a quick head count, then opened both sets of doors. Bill Baugh always specified the title turnkey rather than guards. NVA guards, he said, were armed soldiers. But turnkeys never carried guns and did not speak English. They communicated by gestures and grunted phrases in Vietnamese. Only the interrogator officers spoke English. Newcomb said the camp staff intentionally spoke, quote, no Vietnamese around us so we would not pick up the language and eavesdrop on them, end quote. They called the Americans not by name, but by derivatives of their last name, often a single syllable. For instance, Newcomb was called Com, Atterbury was At, Dramisi was Dao, and Ba was Bo, although the Vietnamese pronounced his name Boff. Each morning, the turnkey chose an American to be first out of the cell with the honey buckets, the prisoner's nickname for the reeking toilet buckets. The rest followed him into the courtyard, each pausing at the top of the steps for a welcome breath of fresh air. The stench of nine men in four cesspool buckets in one poorly ventilated room was already rich in April. By the torrid heat and stifling humidity of August, it would be fetid. The honey buckets were dumped in the outhouse, which was nothing more than a shack built over a raised brick platform. The platform was two steps high with two holes for squatting inside. They emptied into a vat below. The turnkey would leave to attend to other duties, locking the courtyard gate behind him and giving the Americans a short respite to bathe and wash their ragged clothes in the well. The North Vietnamese had a quirk. They avoided seeing the Americans naked or relieving themselves. It even avert their eyes if they mistakenly stumbled upon a man in such a state. It was an oddity for people who thought nothing of torturing those same men to the brink of death. Naked men gathered around the well, splashing water on themselves and scrubbing with lye soap. The well was just four feet wide, so not every man could fit in at once. The water was dirty and probably unsanitary. Although the well was bricked on the inside, it was no more than a hole in the ground with a mortar lip, fed by whatever seeped through the high water table. But along with bars of harsh NVA-supplied lye soap, it was their only source of cleansing. After washing, the Americans stood in the sun, shirtless, faces upturned, and eyes closed like birds idling on a telephone wire. It's easy to forget how cleansing sunlight feels until you go months without it or feel it for only moments a day. Typically, the turnkey was gone less than 20 minutes, and his return marked the end of their moment in the sun. It was still April when the final room shuffle let room six make contact with another cell. When the shave and a haircut tap came through, every man in room six knew the response. They had American neighbors next door in room five. Among the Americans on the other side of the wall was the prison's American SRO, 
Conrad Troutman. Chapter 6, SRO Captain Conrad Troutman was one of the first American prisoners to go into the annex. We got to the zoo annex uh, on the 19th uh, of October, uh, 1967. I remember that date very well. A 40-year-old Pennsylvania native, Connie was the oldest American in the annex. He was a career military man. He enlisted in the Army Air Corps in June 1945 at age 18, two months before the end of World War II. He earned his Air Force commission as a lieutenant and his pilot wings in 1950, then flew combat missions in the Korean War. He left the service in 1953, but returned to active duty two years later. A married father of two and son of German immigrants, he believed in the traditions and inherent honor of military officers, but he had been passed over for promotion to major many times. Bob quipped, he had a date of rank of forever. Bob believed Troutman pulled strings with friendly generals to get one last flying assignment in Southeast Asia as his career wound down. He was shot down on the morning of October 5, 1967, flying his 62nd mission in an F-105D Thunder Chief fighter bomber out of Karat Air Base, Thailand. Troutman spoke about the day he was captured. So I, I was paraded uh, for the, all day long, except for maybe, I think, about a two-hour siesta. Other than that, I was paraded to several villages, and uh, like many others, uh, put on display and blocked stone with uh, farm implements, uh, clubs, and wound up with a handle hill around midnight, and uh, from then on, it all went downhill. North Vietnamese prison camps were filling with American aviators in October 1967. Troutman said it was one of the heaviest months of shootdowns. Quote, they just didn't have time to Mickey Mouse around with us. As soon as you went through name, rank, date of birth, and serial number, they didn't mess around. They went right to the ropes. I was interrogated and tortured in the ropes within 20 minutes. End quote. The rope treatment, or the ropes, was perhaps the North Vietnamese's cruelest method of torture. It started with heavy iron manacles around the ankles. Made by the French for the smaller Vietnamese people, they were too small for most Americans and would quickly cut off circulation to the feet as they cut into flesh, as Dermisi had experienced. The prisoner's wrists were tied behind his back with several loops of heavy rope, then tied again at the elbows, pulling them together in a painfully unnatural way. The arms were then forced up, over the prisoner's head to the point that shoulders often dislocated. A rope was run from the wrists to the ankle irons and then pulled to force the prisoner's head to his knees. The rope was looped back from the ankle irons and tied around the prisoner's neck, making breathing all but impossible. Finally, the ropes were cinched together tight to lock the prisoner in this excruciating position, bent unnaturally into unwavering agony and suffocating just enough to remain conscious. Then the questions and beatings began. If the Vietnamese didn't get the answers they wanted, they'd leave the prisoner in contorted agony for hours. Every American POW had been through the ropes at some point. The thought of suffering the ropes again terrified them all. After two weeks of ropes, beatings, and interrogations in the Hanoi Hilton, Troutman was moved into a cell with three other recently captured pilots. All had been wounded. None had received medical treatment. 
Troutman still suffered from an open and bleeding bullet wound in his lower leg. A few days later, they were taken to the newly opened annex, where they found relief from the ropes and harsh conditions of the Hilton and the fellowship of many Americans. Here's Troutman about the early days in the annex. It took many months to establish communication because of the new camp. We were dispersed on separate buildings. By design, the separation made it difficult for annex prisoners to establish a chain of command amongst themselves. Mike McCushion said, It took us a hell of a long time to figure out that everybody in the camp was a captain. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we're trying to figure out who the uh, ranking officer is. Of course, it all takes a month to talk to somebody. Right. And they'd say, well, this guy's data rig, such and such. And it took us a long time, really, months, to determine, my God, we're all captains. In reality, some annex cells also held lower-ranking O2s and enlisted men, but after months of communications and date of rank comparisons between several dozen captains spread among ten cells in five buildings, Troutman was identified as the senior-most captain and thus the Annex American's senior-ranking officer. The agony and terror of the ropes would haunt his every decision as SRO. Mike McGrath said, You know, Connie was a real strict military, well, every military protocol, and that, you know, every, every military man has honor and integrity and would never tell a lie. John Michael Mike McGrath was one of Troutman's cellmates in Room 5. In the late 1990s, during the era of these interviews, McGrath lived minutes away from Bill Baugh and was president of NAMPOWs, N-A-M-P-O-Ws, the official organization of Americans held as prisoners during the Vietnam War. When McGrath was shot down in June 1967, he was a Navy lieutenant equal in rank to an Air Force captain. He arrived at the annex from the Hanoi Hilton the same day as Troutman. When Troutman was established as annex SRO, his cellmates, including McGrath, became his de facto military staff. McGrath recalled, Conrad was a little older, a little more mature, a little more seasoned than the other captains. Troutman organized efforts to establish communications between cells and buildings and to assemble memorized lists of American captives. He held weekly staff meetings with his cellmates. Quote Troutman, We got together and talked about anything, problems, tensions, conflicts. End quote. He organized his staff into committees, including an escape committee to discuss ways to break out of the camp. He said the committee's purpose wasn't an attempt to break free and go home. He explains here. The escape committee was primarily for survival. In case of fire, flood, that summer we went through a potential flood evacuation. So there was a concern of fire, flood, riots from the local populace, and even the rare occasion of an airborne assault by friendly forces or ground invasion that we might be liberated. And and, and the panic of being liberated, they might try to execute us. So it was more a survival, how to get hell out of here. And then secondary, uh, a bonafide scheme. And that was with the uh, understanding that the, uh, Colonel Robin Rice put out years ago, uh, no escape unless there's outside assistance. That was the criteria, if we ever got that far. Risner was the highest-ranking American known by his fellow prisoners to be held in the zoo. He also outranked Troutman and everyone in the adjoining annex as well. Thus, Risner was the presumed SRO of the two connected prisons. 
Before the North Vietnamese put Risner into isolation, presumably alive and presumably somewhere in the zoo, his final guidance about escape had been no escape without outside help. That was due to the low probability of success outside the prison where any American would be alone in an Asian nation hostile to Americans and to protect those Americans left behind for surely they would face the ropes in the aftermath. Unknown to the Americans in the zoo and annex, Risner was not in solitary confinement. He had been moved to the Hanoi Hilton before the annex opened. He was no longer SRO in either prison. But to Troutman and the men in his command, Risner's guidance stood. No escape without outside help. Troutman's status as SRO of the annex was subject to change at any time, should another POW who outranked him be found in the annex. This troubled Troutman because by April 1968, he still had not established communications with every annex cell holding Americans, including the cell with Atterbury, Lengiel, and three others. Those men were unknown to their fellow annex inmates. The room shuffle of April 1968 closed that loop and finally let Troutman and his staff assemble a full accounting of Americans held in the annex, as well as determine who was SRO in each cell in the entire camp. McGrath recalled, quote, Starting a year before the escape, when they first did the shuffle, Conrad asks, who's the senior-ranking person in each room? End quote. The request spread cell to cell over days. Back comes a name from each room, and from the room next door comes the name John Dramisi as senior in six. Troutman's staff already had a list of room six's residents. McGrath continued, In person, it was living with us. They lived with him. Said, "No, I can't be right." Uh, Red Wilson's in that room, and Red Senior's a stranger. Troutman asked Room Six to confirm their SRO. American prisoners of war were subjected to a myriad of camp rules, all aimed at breaking their will to resist and ability to communicate amongst themselves. Cells were segregated not only by walls but by feeding and bathing schedules. Room Six was never let outside when their Room Five neighbors were out. If by chance Americans encountered other prisoners while out of their courtyard on a work detail, even an attempted glance would draw a blow from a rifle butt or a boot heel. But the most serious offense was communicating from one cell to another. Get caught communicating between cells and the North Vietnamese were likely to institute a purge. They'd systematically take individual prisoners to quiz, the NVA euphemism for interrogation. More often than not, a quiz included beatings and ropes. Tap code was useful for communicating between cells because the NVA had to catch the Americans in the act, and the act itself left no evidence. Written notes could convey much more information between cells more quickly and clearly, but were proof not only of communication, but also of content and intent. It is unclear exactly when or which room initiated the idea, but around the time Troutman requested confirmation of Dramacy's status as SRO, the two cells established a note drop in the brick wall dividing their courtyards. The prisoners in each cell dug out the mortar between bricks in their shared outdoor wall, creating a space where notes could be passed between rooms. They were careful to cover the space each day with a broken chunk of mortar to evade detection by the guards. One cell would hide a note in the wall during their courtyard time, 
Then the next cell would retrieve it and reply with their own note during their courtyard time. It was an extremely risky tactic, but necessary for conveying anything more than a couple sentences. Increasing the risk, it took the Americans on each side of the wall days to co-locate and dig out the same space between bricks and the 10-foot-high brick wall as they tried to communicate location, measurements, and brick counts via tap code. Troutman said, We kept going holes. They kept going holes, and we never found the same hole. It is nearly certain that the development of the note drop between rooms 5 and 6 played out in spring 1968 while Troutman was compiling his mental list of SROs in each annex cell, because decades later, men in both rooms 5 and 6 recalled that the interroom discussion of room 6's SRO shifted from tap code to written notes. Notes were written on toilet paper, using ink made from water or spit mixed with brick dust or cigarette ash. Al Meyer explains, Quote, the bricks were very soft and you could scrape red dust off them and mix it with water and it made red ink, end quote. Slivers of wood served as quills. Because discretion and resources were critical, the ability to write clearly in the tiniest possible print was paramount. Many cells had designated note writers. Mike McGrath was Room 5's writer. John Dramisi was pen man for Room 6. Troutman got his requested SRO confirmation after the two cells found the same crack in the wall and the note drop was established. McGrath recalled, quote, McGrath, Back comes a note that says Dramisi was promoted a major and a senior man in the room. Well, Conrad says, if you're a major, then you're senior to me and you're the senior man in the camp. What's your date of rank? According to McGrath, Dramisi's next note says something like, I was promoted to major but I was shot down before I could pin him on. But I'm really a major. Again, Troutman asked for Dramisi's date of rank and attempted to cede camp leadership to Dramisi. Dramisi wrote back, I'm senior ranking officer in the room. McGrath said Dramisi's notes were always cryptic, never completely answering Troutman's requests. Dramisi seemed to be skirting the issue of camp leadership. The back and forth continued with new notes each day. Dramisi kept insisting only that he was SRO in room 6. Finally, Dramisi admitted he still wore captain's rank. McGrath says, back comes another note. And I said, well, I was promoted to major, but I was shot down before I could pin him on. Kind of cryptic messages, never complete, half-assed messages. In room 5, some of Troutman's staff urged him to appoint Wilson SRO of room 6, they knew Dramisi was not yet a major at shootdown and that Wilson outranked him as captains. Troutman had Dramisi's latest note. Quote Troutman. Well, look right here. It says Dramisi is senior. If he says he's senior ranking officer in that room, then he's senior ranking officer in that room. I accept that. If Red Wilson was senior, he'd tell me. It would be a year before Troutman changed his mind. Not his staff. McGrath said, quote, all of us in the room knew there was something phony going on there, end quote. You've been listening to The Party Dolls, a 10-episode podcast based on the book by George Hayward about the true tragic story of two Americans attempted escape from a 1969 Hanoi POW camp during the Vietnam War. Next week, in episode three, the men of room six begin to seek a way out of the cell, and they coin the terms The Party and The Party Dolls. We hope you'll tune in next week or buy the book today on Amazon. Cheers.